I was chatting with another friend of mine who works in media. She's got some great ideas about centering all these women from our communities, like coast to coast. And Right. Yeah. I've been uh, working a lot more with a lot of women, actually, myself, too. Um, just feeling like uh, that's the way to go right now, I feel. Like um, I had a lot of revelations over the last couple of months. And um, one of them was that um, I need to do more in terms of helping women get to where there's like fix things in terms of, you know, helping women get their platforms. I'm going to want to use my platform as much as I can to give women a platform. So that's something mm-hmm. that I'm focusing on. Hence why I wanted to talk to you as well. But I have a bunch of women in the future that I'd like to talk to because, um, yeah, man, it's like uh, I'm not doing enough. I didn't feel like I was doing enough. And we can talk about that, about the whole George Floyd thing for a little bit, because um, yeah. that was what uh, was the spur for me. Just to, like I felt like I was sleepwalking before um, all that happened. And it kind of changed the way I looked at things like the world, really, to be honest with you. So well, it's such it's such a um like I feel like the word movement doesn't even do it justice anymore because this this like global mobilization you know I've been reading that it's probably it's been like the um the largest movement or largest like mobilization in the history of like the U.S. and right I just feel like we're we're so um, lucky despite how terrible the circumstances are to be a part of something really, really significant in that way. Yeah. And um, everyone that I've spoken to, they've all had the same kind of thought process about it. Like I, I actually went through a bit of a traumatic experience myself. So we've actually kind of started the podcast already, even though we didn't really introduce and do all that stuff. So let's do all the formalities real quick. Okay. Okay. Because okay. um, we just want to, like, there's so much that we can talk about. And um, yeah, there's just so much to talk about. So um, first of all, I want to thank you. First, no, first of all, I should congratulate you. Let, let me be um, the first, and I, I planned this out. I, I had rehearsed what I'm about to say here. Okay, so um, I, let me be the first person speaking to you on Zoom today for Tuesday, July 7th to congratulate you <laughs> on becoming a lawyer. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Daniel yeah. Morrison, everybody. Daniel Morrison. <laughs> it's been such a long journey. How long has this journey been for you? Oh, my God. And I will just give everyone the quick synopsis for you. Lawyer, entrepreneur, activist, badass, overdresser, overdresser. (laughs) Yes, 100% always overdressed. Yeah, but um, you've been on the show with us on hashtag a few times, and we always usually wound up speaking to you around Canada Day or Halloween because those always seem to be the two times of the year where people just want to just be idiots and do dumb stuff you know what i mean like especially halloween halloween is what blows my mind more than anything else because people get called out they get publicly shamed for doing all the cultural appropriation stuff with their costumes Uh that they do every single year every single year every single year you can set your you can set your watch to it you can set your watch to it people need to smarten up and we just got to keep putting them back in line it's like why why are we still having this conversation right I actually, <laughs> i'm getting tired yeah it, it's it's mind-numbing to me because it just i don't know if they live under a rock or they just think like they're not going to get caught or they just think like their picture won't go viral i don't know what's on their noodle i don't know because yeah. it's like you get caught you post it someone has to check you and say like you know this is this is not cool this isn't mm-hmm. like you guys haven't you it's like 2020 by now, like, have you guys not mm-hmm. learned anything kind of thing? But anyways, we'll talk about it in a sec. I need to ask you a question. Can you please tell me how you pronounce um, your, your... My Anishinaabe name. So I, yeah, I did please. a big change this year um, with my social media presence. And that was all about sort of coming into my own and embracing sort of the multifaceted person that I am and the, the types of skills and knowledge that I can offer. And it's my Anishinaabe name that was given to me when I was a baby, which is uh, pronounced Neobanasik. Okay. Um, it means four Thunderbird women. And that name was given to me by a well-known elder from Treaty 3 area. His name was Alex Skeed. And when you're given your name, an elder will usually wait until they have a dream or a vision or the name and the story behind it will, will come to them. So it comes to him shortly after I was born. And the dream that he had was that there was um, four women that came rising out of the waters. And there was a man in the sky who was singing and he was drumming. And 
they started dancing in a circle and rising up into the sky at the same time. And then as they got further and further towards the clouds, they all transformed into Thunderbird women. Okay. And the beauty of that is that, you know, law school and all the life challenges that come along with that and that journey, it can really take its toll. And it did. There was some points in the last year where I felt the burnout. The burnout was very real. And I was reminded by my mother of the power in that name and that eventually, you know, despite how hard it feels to be in that deep, dark water and it just feels like you're never going to come out of it. Those women, like they always rise. Right, right. Um, So I wanted my, my, I guess, my social media presence and my public presence to really reflect um, how diverse we can be as individuals and the kind of things that we bring to the table in terms of helping community and also like just doing the things that we love. Um, you know, I, I, I love the idea that like, I'm now a lawyer, but I never want to let go of all these other things too, that I enjoy doing. And I know that other people feel inspired by Right. It just enhances who you already were, right. (laughs) For the most part, that's a good way to look at it. But um, in the story, uh, do the four women join the man with the drums in the sky or like, yeah. So then they all end up, um, in the sky and then they just continue dancing and then together forever and ever kind of thing. I love it. That's, that's amazing. Um, there's a whole bunch of issues obviously that we can talk about and we will get to those in a sec, but let's just touch on clan mother for just a little bit because I think it's so awesome. And by the way, there you go. Yeah, folks. You're repping it yeah. so hard. Yo, I love it. Do you know how many compliments I get about on this oh. shirt? Like, yo, it's people. I always see the look on someone's face. Sometimes when I'm walking down the street, they, they look at it and then they're like, yo, where'd you get that? And I'm like <laughs> clan mother. And there's, I've gotten that so many times because it's like it takes them a second because they realize it's woo, but then they see like the indigenous motif of it and everything. Yeah. And they're just like, yo, bro, that T-shirt. Oh, I what love did, that. How did, you, how did, what was the inspiration for this T-shirt? You got to like tell me because the first time I saw it, I, I hit you up and I was like, no, actually, I hit you up when um, you were saying like, yeah, you guys have 10 days left. <laughs> you, you were like, yeah. you guys- you guys got 10 days left if you want these t-shirts and i was like oh man and i twitter fingers got to you know and i was like i need one of these t-shirts danielle so like what was the inspiration for the t-shirt obviously hip-hop yeah uh hip-hop and but also um a very good friend of mine wob canoe it was his birthday coming up and i had no idea what to get him i mean what do you get the man that has everything right and i want Thing that was very personalized uh, and we've definitely shared in our love for hip-hop um, but he's also an artist too so I knew that he would appreciate something that was more custom made and I've sort of been mulling around this idea of like doing uh, an Anishinaabe version of the Wu-Tang logo and so I whipped it together it came to me uh, pretty quickly I'm really inspired by the work of Norvell more so especially oh, he's his my career. favorite he's yeah. my favorite yeah, he's such uh, he's such a gift uh, oh. and a pure genius. And I love his early work. I have some books sitting around at home here of his really early work that was just very simple lines. I like can't, it was I can't like find any of his books. I can't find any books of his anywhere. Like uh, it just occurred mm-hmm. to me the other day I was in a used bookstore and they had like a replica of one of his paintings on the wall. I mm-hmm. thought it was for sale and I ran to the desk and said, how much for the morsel in the corner there? And he was like, oh, no, no. That's just for decoration. We wouldn't even sell it if we could. Like, I'm never selling yeah. that kind of thing. It's like his art is every time I go to the AGO here in Ontario, I spend the most amount of time looking at his art more than anything else. And yeah. I just overall for indigenous art, it's it's tragic to say it, but you'll understand why I say it, that there's so much emotion and pain <laughs> Mm-hmm. in the art and it, it it literally emanates out at you like in most artists that i see indigenous artists just overall mm-hmm. but more so more so than anybody else where it's yeah. just like you it's the emotion of the art is just so visceral you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's really transformative i love the progression that his art really took from you know depicting the type of things that we would have seen in my territory on you know rock paintings and how basic and symbolic all of those motifs and images were to then becoming you know these insanely large and colorful 
um, renditions of scenes from ceremony or, you know, relationships and families and, and how it was such a, a representation of his life and the way that it changed and becoming, you know, but also as people at the same time. Yeah, he, it, really, was, really. it was really both. He kept his individuality with his art, obviously, because no artist is the same. But I still always see almost this, the the common denominator of the the pain of the people in every artist's art. You know what I mean? Like, it's always like there's always that commonality in the art, but more so. Yeah, it's like um, individual. But at the same time, it's it's like of the people almost. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it's, it's just he blows. It's incredible. I got to find his word. How many books of his do you have? I have one. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you, oh, just one? I gotta, what is, I gotta oh, find it. I like, have one. <laughs> is it like a big one with like just giant? It's just a tiny little book oh. and it's, it's mostly, um, on, it's called Ojibwe Legends. Okay. So they're very early, early drawings of, of his work. Uh, and he, he focuses on depicting certain mythological creatures, um, or, different clans and animals right. and one of them like they're all like the very clear distinct lines and then you know the eye representation so i'm just looking at your t-shirt okay and yeah. that was the style that i was sort of picking up on was um more so and woodlands version and sort of like its most basic grassroots form yeah no it's the amazing color is just like the color i really i really wanted that gold color to pop but and I, you don't really I like the black on white too, though. The black on white looks really dope too. Yeah, yeah. It's just the design. I think it's the design. I think any color that you would put on this, as long as the colors don't clash per se, I think it would look amazing. I really do. Yeah, I mean, like I've sort of hemmed and hawed over getting it printed in other colors, like, um, because I'm going to be doing another fundraiser. Um, Like, I made a decision that the next time I run the Wu-Tang Dotem design that I want to make sure that I'm giving back to all the things that I'm inspired by black culture, hip hop culture, right. um, being an indigenous artist and sort of aligning myself as an ally. I wanted to ensure that all the proceeds from the next uh, drop go towards uh, black lives matter. And um, I was looking at like a dark Heather t-shirt, what kind of colors might look good on that. Okay. And just kind of like, how many renditions did you go through of this one before you settled on what I'm wearing now? And sorry for it. everyone listening to the podcast. You guys are just going to have to look at it um, on Instagram and see. I, I continue to forget sometimes because I'm not used to doing this video medium now that there are people right, listening to right. the podcast and they're going to be like, what the, what is he, what are they talking about? So you guys Clan, just. Clan dot mother on go. Instagram. Thank you. you. See all the, the shirts and the and also the website clan mothercom And you know I'll put it in the show notes for the uh, podcast as well. So you guys, I'll, I'll make it easy for all you lazy people. Just click on the links. <laughs> there you go. But um, yeah, I mean, I didn't. I actually didn't do any other renditions of that. It just it made the most sense. Black T-shirt, gold. Right. Got it printed and then gave it to Wob for his birthday, and he was so thrilled about it. I remember he took a picture and posted it on Instagram and it got huge traction at the time. And there were people like Martin Sensmeyer asking where to get one. Were you surprised by the reaction to it or? I was, I was really surprised. I mean, I wasn't surprised that, you know, given Wob's platform that it would get a lot of attention, but I was surprised to see how many people were asking where they could get one of the t-shirts. So then he and a few other friends of mine um, who run their own businesses had said, this would really take off. You should consider actually getting it printed, like doing a run, and then I kind of mulled around on it for a good year because I was also in law school and oh, I sort of right. dedicated my time. That's to... kind of, how can you split your time already? Like it was pretty much just all dedicated towards studying, I guess, right? Start up a small business for the fun. <laughs> and and then the, the name uh, finally came to me, uh, Clan Mother. And, and then we just did you know, a really limited run of the t-shirts and they sold out within a couple of days. Two seconds, I'll bet. The response was overwhelming. Um, and it's it continues to be overwhelming. The amount of people that ask, when are you doing another drop? Or, you know, I, I see it all over Winnipeg too. And then I'll get messages from other people 
um, living in other parts of the country, like out West. Oh, my friend texted me and said, I was at a music festival and we were both wearing our clan mother shirts. And then we had this moment where we were like, Oh my God, you know, Danielle, da, 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 love her artwork. And it was, it just really, um, it's so fulfilling. And that's cool. the best part of having something like that, that I can always, um, escape to and feel that sense of fulfillment. That's amazing. Like really really cool to our world yeah yeah you absolutely are so what you you touched on it so we might as well go there now because um i I wanted to get your opinion well not your opinion but just hear your perspective of how it was when you first saw or heard about the george floyd case and then obviously it was it was pretty much like the last straw just from the black community to be like you know okay enough's enough It it was just the most heinous and most blatant um act of violence I had ever seen myself personally and it really put me in a tailspin mentally for a few days after I had seen it because I try to avoid seeing that kind of stuff right so um how what was your perspective from seeing it were you trying to avoid it was it unavoidable for you as it was for me because it was so viral and just how long did it take for you to kind of just process the whole thing oh man I I didn't watch the video I had seen enough uh screenshots plastered all over social media and had also heard about how traumatizing it was for, you know, black people in my own community and my own circle to have to constantly look at it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's not like um, I haven't seen violence against black people and indigenous people to really understand, you know, where people are coming from. And so I just didn't really feel like it was necessary for me to even watch it. Right. I knew what had happened. Um, and that it was absolutely wrong. And it, it took me days, honestly. <laughs> I, um, I think also because it was like in the middle of this, lo- in middle of lockdown, you just feel completely helpless, you know, and then you see people starting to mobilize in the streets. And that was when things really started to, to boil over. And I felt this, uh, sense of urgency. Uh, and a need to take action and participate and be a part of this movement. And what can I do? You know, like, what is my role in this? Or, you know, is it, do I even have a role? Because really it comes down to us taking a back seat and putting the people whose voices need to be amplified at the center. Can I say one thing about that real quick? Because yeah, I know what you're saying in that regard, but this is, this has always been my feeling. Um, because, uh, yes, this is a time for Black Lives Matter, and obviously it's it's centered around the black community, particularly with uh, the issues that we've had with police brutality and injustice. Mm-hmm. i just like to repeat it because there's just so many people trying to throw so much mud in the water. We're trying mm-hmm. to see to the bottom of this lake, and people just keep on throwing dust into the water, right? So, yeah, mm-hmm. stop trying to convolute the narrative, but here's the thing. There's one issue or one cause that I will never care about taken a backseat to that I will always allow to have as much if not more shine and that is indigenous issues because mm-hmm. that th- there's no time or day that's a 24-7 thing for me where it's like you want a mm-hmm. platform I will give it to you like I will it, everything else yes this is a Black Lives Matter moment but that my mm-hmm. one exception <laughs> will always be indigenous <laughs> because from day one and it has always been the case the solidarity between black people and indigenous people has always been literally lock and step as long as I've ever, as long as I've lived, as long as I've yeah. lived, it's indigenous people yeah. have always had black people's backs. Always, mm-hmm. always, always, because we, it's the shit there's indigenous people and black people are the only people that can really have at least an appreciation for each other's pain. Mm-hmm. Simple and plain. Like you guys have been allies I, with us from day never, one, man. I never really came to understand that until I moved away from, where I grew up, like I grew up in a really small town, Kenora, okay. which the majority of people there are indigenous and white. And there are some other POC um, families and like a smaller community there um, with a different cross section of cultures and ethnicities. But it has always been sort of like this red versus white atmosphere oh, okay. in a place like Kenora. And then when I got older and moved to Ottawa and just sort of was able to observe the, the other racism that, POC and black people were also experiencing. Um, I thought, man, you know, I guess we're, we're not the only ones. Um, but it, it didn't really finally 
sink in for me just how important it was to stand in solidarity and work on the same issues that we're dealing with together until I moved to Winnipeg and I started going to law school. And, you know, when you're in law school, it's a very white occupied, like Western oriented space as the only indigenous people or the only black people in the room, you really are sort of drawn to one another because people are constantly either putting you on a pedestal or denying um, your experiences of racism altogether. And so it can be a very isolating experience. You can feel really alone. And so I just felt, I felt so uh, blessed to have other black women in the, at the law school that I was attending over the last three years uh, to be able to, commiserate and and share our experiences with one another and then lift each other up and all the things that we were trying to do uh, and share, you know, advice on like, you know, we're trying to tackle this issue or, you know, we're trying to start up this type of event and how do we do that? Um, And we still continue to have those conversations. They just form like some of the best connections in that space. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, let's, let's talk a little bit about that now because we just had Canada day just passed by. (laughs) excuse me and again it's always a conflicting day for me we've spoken about this before in the past how and i actually yeah i actually saw a great meme that kind of illustrates the conflicted feelings that some a lot of canadians have about it where it's like imagine you're you believe you're a single child and your mom raises you and she does a great job raising you and she loves you and takes care of you and then as you get a little older you come to find out that you actually had some siblings who she has been treating horribly all these years and you care about you these are siblings that you've just come to find out about so now you have to reconcile the emotions that you have with this woman that you do love she's raised Mm -hmm. you she's taken care of you but she's been treating these other children who are your relatives horribly for years Mm -hmm. and years she's been doing all sorts of things that you would be ashamed of to tell people and now those are the kind of emotions that at least if you're aware of what's happening <laughs> you would be grappling with because there's that a whole other set of people that we have to address in terms of who are unaware and mm-hmm. for them it's just Canada's Day is just the greatest thing on the face of the earth and it's just like they don't understand why you wouldn't want to celebrate it that it blows my it blows my mind that people even still question why some people are conflicted about celebrating yeah. it Well, and I see that as a failure on the part of our country and our government. You know, they're just not doing a good enough job of educating people on the true history of this country and what it was on. And the reason why, you know, you have this massive land that you continue to benefit from, it's because you had Indigenous people that welcomed you into the territory and shared the land and had an understanding that it was going to be continued to share. But, you know, the mentality of Western colonization is that, well, we show up here and we're going to conquer your people and we're going to help you by civilizing everyone. And I mean, like, even just talking about that, people think that this is a thing of the past, but all of those systems that were put in place continue to exist today. So colonization is not, you know, we're not post-colonial. We don't live in a post-colonial world. Colonization is ongoing because all of these systems were built to benefit white supremacy. There's no other way to put it. You know, Danielle, honestly, that's one of the things that frustrates the shit. Well, I'm going to curse. You haven't been cursing. You've been very eloquent, (laughs) mind you. But I'm sorry. It it frustrates the shit out of me how hard it is for people to connect the dots from, from the past to the present. And it's not... The last residential school was 96, bro. It wasn't even that long ago. I mean, like... It is wild. You know, when I was doing work with residential school survivors, I was expecting to only be working with elderly people. And then when it actually came down to it, I was meeting people who were only a few years older than me. Yeah. People who were the same age as my siblings and had attended a residential school and had gone through horrific experiences of abuse. And that that's my generation. You know, I'm 33 years old. Right. This is, it's not a thing of the past. And then now we're recovering. I mean, I, I wouldn't even say that we're recovering. There's still There's the so ongoing much to do. of the child welfare system that is still taking children away from their families. Missing women. Outside of the outside of the community. Missing and murdered Indigenous women and yeah. two-spirit girls, two-spirit people. And it's just... 
the long, you know, list goes on and on. Boil, boil water advisories, at least for us uh, here in Ontario. This is this is one of the things that pisses me off more than anything else. We have at least 13 Indigenous reservations in Ontario, I believe, that um, have boil water advisories in 2020, Danielle. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm like, what? And then for me to see how much money uh, Mr. Trudeau started throwing out like cotton candy once the pandemic mm-hmm. hit made me think you could have fixed a lot of these issues a long time ago. You just you just didn't care or you chose not to. And it infuriates me when I think about it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like the answers aren't there either. This is something that Indigenous people have been saying for decades that they've been fighting for. And it just falls on deaf ears because when it comes down to creating legislation that is meant to impact change, really significant change, you know, ensuring that every reserve in this country has clean water uh, or ensuring that Indigenous people have jurisdiction over the care and safety of our children. There's no money attached to it. So how are we supposed to do this work? We're like, it's not just going to magically appear. And the thing backed into these reserves given um you know a finite amount of money to be able to run an entire municipality because that's the best way that you can compare it is that you know you're not relying on the province for education you have to provide your own education system Mm -hmm. there's healthcare that's lacking you have very little infrastructure Um, and i mean not all the reserves are like this things kind of change like as you go from east coast to west coast and that follows the history of treaties that were signed um, and what modern treaties were able to accomplish, because at that point, people sort of realized, well, you know, look at the shitty deal that all the numbered treaties had gotten out of that. Um, and so let's be a little more mindful of when we're negotiating with the government as nations. Um, but yeah, it just kind of like put into a box with very limited resources and then given uh, solutions by government, you know, through these new acts such as Bill C-92 and the the Clean Water Drinking Act, but nothing gets done. Nothing, nothing gets done. Nothing ever gets done. It's a ploy to get reelected. Look at what we did. Look at how much, you know, we worked with First Nations in order to um, introduce these very historical new acts that are supposed to help Indigenous people. But then again, there's just no, there's not enough resources to get the actual work done. So it's very frustrating. And I I think as a lawyer or an advocate, it's always been my job to just like keep amplifying those voices and giving people the knowledge and the tools that they need to just start doing the work that we need to do because we're constantly in survival mode. Yeah, and, just, it, and it shouldn't be incumbent upon you guys to fix anything anyways. That's, that's, that's the real thing that grinds my gears. It's that... It's, it's, it's literally almost the same thing with the Black Lives Matter movement, where they always want to try to turn it around on black people in terms of saying, well, what are you doing to fix the problem? It's like, we're, we didn't start the racism. It's yeah. Like, we, we're not, we're only experiencing it, but we're not the ones, exper- like, and it's the same thing with indigenous people. It burns my blood when I see people criticizing protesters when they want to just throw a pipeline through their land, like, without, you know, going through the proper way of getting permission to do something on such a massive scale. And then they want to turn around and criticize protesters when they want to block railroads just to get their attention, just to get their attention. Like, what is the criticism? I don't understand it. Is it that people feel threatened by a group of peaceful protesters who are gathering on their own territory? That doesn't make sense to me. It comes from not being able to see things from another person's perspective, which is, I think that applies for most, whether it's for black people for racism, because black people get criticized. They all get, I've heard, I've seen it so many times where they just turn around and say, well, you're the racist. Like, makes no, it literally, (laughs) it's like, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and stick. Like, they literally go with that as their arguments for a lot of this stuff. And it's like, I heard a really interesting saying about this, and I don't know, I wish I knew who said it just so I could quote them to give them credit for this, but they said, if you only, you will never know the history of your country if you only learn what they teach you in school. Exactly. 100%. Everything that I learned about our community and the strength and Anishinaabe identity in our nation and our culture, I learned from my parents. I didn't learn any of that in school. I remember pointing out to my history teacher in grade 10, how uh, 
little we went over when it came to Indigenous people and the history of Canada. There was a few pages that showed, you know, Indians in a birch bark canoe. And then there was a picture of a residential school. And on the next page, there was that really infamous photo of the warrior and the soldier in a standoff in the Yoka crisis. And that was it. That's it. What, three pages? I remember flipping through the book and I was like, where's the rest of it? This is crazy. You know, and these are the people that are now adults. That's the education that they got. These are these are people who are now becoming doctors and lawyers and or just politicians continue. and making decisions for people's lives. Like it's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the education to me has really uh, done a disservice to Canadians in our country by not being truthful and forthcoming about what this country was actually built on and what it continues to benefit from. And it's it. It means that the onus is now on everyone to educate themselves. I mean, right. people always end up, you know, coming to me because this is the first time they've heard about, you know, racism still uh, perpetuating and existing today. And they're like, oh, my God, I had no idea. I really want to learn more. Can you tell me, you know, where I, where I can learn more? And I said, it's a simple Google search is a great place to start, you know. And also, it's just not my job to educate. I, I've, I've done that. I've been that How person. How frustrating is that for you? Like this person in the room or the classroom and people kind of look at you and they're like, or when props will straight up call you out and say, Danielle, what do you think about that? I'm the one who's making six figures on this. You're supposed to be educating. I'm here to learn just like everybody else. And if you're failing to add proper weight to indigenous perspectives and experiences, then that's your problem. I'm not here to educate people. Yeah. I actually would believe he probably doesn't even know. I bet you, I, I would bet you it, it's as sad as it is to think that there, I'm sure. And it's probably just the reality of life that there are some people that are in positions teaching people that know less than us in terms of because they haven't really put in the work and they probably took those three pages that they read in that book and they ran with it in terms of what they know about indigenous history and all that stuff. It, it's, it's, it blows my mind that you can't even get to the, how do you not realize the state sanctioned genocide of what it is for people that were 100% of the population that are now maybe 5% of our population? Like that, those numbers alone should shake you out of your apathy to say, you know, mm-hmm. I don't understand. Well, and I'm glad that you used that term too, because it was genocide. You know, yeah. I took a class on international criminal justice in my last year of law school, and we go through the definition of all these crimes against humanity and what genocide is. And attempted genocide is genocide. The forcible transfer of children from their families is genocide. And then you actually look at the history of that definition and what the United Nations and the the man who actually coined the term genocide, he wanted to include cultural genocide in that definition. But the countries countries that voted against it, guess which ones they were? Canada and the USA. Canada, the US, and Australia. Oh, of course, Australia. All of these countries that were built on a colonial history of decimating indigenous civilizations all voted against it because they knew that it would implicate them and set them as criminals. Yeah. Countries that had committed a a huge travesty of genocide. Um, And so it, I mean, even just the whole system of criminal justice uh, and persecuting on an international level, I mean, it just ends up getting used against third world countries people who are not able to defend themselves because they don't have like the insane type of money that Canada or us would and Australia. Right. Yeah. So that was a really um, empowering class for me to take because, you know, I knew deep down inside, I knew that, you know, being the child of grandparents and a father that had gone to residential school, I had seen how it devastated our communities. There was no doubt in my heart that, it was genocide and people would always say, Oh, you can't compare it. You can't compare it. You know, how, to how do you not compare it? How, like, how do you not compare it? How do you not compare the it? Why, the reason why it, it's so hard to nail it down is because this country is so good at hiding it. <laughs> I, I've right? always, this is the way I always. And destroying uh, any evidence that children were going missing or dying. You know, the records 
show that about 6,000 children died in residential schools. And that's only what's on record. Yeah, no, I'm, we know the numbers are more than that. And, like, it's unfortunate to know it because, and on top of that, this is a real insidious thing about sorry, not sorry, Canada, period, is that I've always put it in terms of um, Canada was just wiser with their PR historically when it came to their racism and, yes, genocide. It's, it's, I don't understand how you don't like look at it as genocide, especially when you are separating. John A. Macdonald, literally, you can see quotes from him literally saying, we need to take these children away from literally describing Indigenous people as savages and not wanting them to grow up in that culture and becoming savages, doing the air quotes here for anybody listening on the podcast, because it, and then you, it's fine you want to hold him up as a father of confederation, I get it. Yes, he was one of the guys that helped start this whole Canadian experiment that we're all under right now. That being, however, you also have to look at a lot of the shitty stuff that he did, particularly when it came to Indigenous people, and it's right there in black and white for anybody to read it. Mm-hmm. It's- yeah, he said, um, taking the Indian out of the child. It was whatever it took to separate children, which is the most heinous act that you could commit against a parent. You know, I think about my daughter, and this still happens today with the CFS system and birth alerts, you know, babies being taken from their mothers at birth. It's the most violent act that you could commit against a woman. Right. Yeah. Taking her child away from her. Um, you know, with residential schools, they, they made it law that you had to send your children to residential school. Um, at the time, it would have been when a child turns five or six, but there are records of children as young as two and three years old being taken away from their families. And people think that it's gotten better and it hasn't because now you have birth alerts where children are taken from their mothers as soon as they are born. These families think that they're going to take their child home. They've got their car seats ready and everything. And then you have the police show up in the hospital and they, they snatch the baby. They literally take the baby out of a woman's arms. It's awful. And the first time I heard about that, was in my second year of law school, Cor Morgan came and did a seminar in our class on Indigenous people and uh, the justice system. And she talked about how um, prevalent it was in Winnipeg alone and how often it was happening every single day a child was being taken away from their mother. Um. And, you know, there's three of us, or there's four of us um, Indigenous women in, in my year. We were all in that class. And we sat in that classroom for hours afterwards. It was just how do you how do you sit through that? Like, what is what is the emotional toll that it takes on you, Daniel? Like, sit, like you're supposed you're supposed to be there in, in a class learning or whatever, and this is part of whatever your curriculum. So be it. But this is such a personal topic for you. How do you sit yeah, through that? It was incomprehensible. I couldn't sit through it. I mean, I did because I am so lucky that I I, I have my child, and that I'm able to raise her. Um, in a stable environment, I, it just—it was unfathomable. I couldn't imagine right. because she was only two or three years old when I started law school. Yeah. It's it's—it's uh, it's heartbreaking. Just a lot of the stuff, and again, it's only heartbreaking if you're aware of it. So a lot of people can kind of skate through society and just like uh, be unaware of this stuff. It's uncomfortable. That's why people are so resistant to change and to listening because it's so uncomfortable to finally come to terms with how much violence is ongoing in our communities, in our in our backyards but, that we just have no idea about. But screw your comfort. Screw your comfort. Right? That's how I feel because, you know, screw your discomfort that you've now only had to experience for the last, you know, these are, these are our lives. Like it's a few it's, minutes or, you know, the last year that things are becoming more prevalent in the news and mainstream uh, media. This is something that people, Indigenous and Black people have been dealing with for decades, for yeah. lifetimes, for yeah. generations. Yeah, the Red, just, the red Dress campaign I thought was brilliant. Like, um, I, I just, uh, we, I saw it for us here in Toronto. They did it on the York University campus. Um, and it was just, it was, it's heartbreaking, but such a sight to see, like, there was so many, like the red dresses literally went from one end of the campus to the other end of the campus into like buildings up walls and around. And it's like, and it's and probably what you're looking, not probably guaranteed what you're looking at is a fraction of the amount of women that have gone missing that not only they don't need, I've heard, seen so many stories of indigenous families that have had to hire private investigators just to get 
to the bottom of things that have happened to their family members. It's it for has that been part of your inspiration or motive for wanting to go into law because of it's insane that you can't get justice. Black people can't get justice. They're down there in the states, especially fighting for it right now. Here in Canada, same thing for black people, but also for indigenous people. Where I have seen multiple stories of indigenous families, and I'll say it again, who have had to hire private investigators just to find out what happened to their family member because the RCMP would not do their damn jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of um, injustice in every aspect of our systems that we have to navigate when it comes to police um, and then navigating the court system, dealing with lawyers. My biggest inspiration, or I guess my, my main motive behind going into law was doing all this work with residential school survivors and hearing about their experiences, not only of having attended residential school, but the amount of times they really, really had to advocate for themselves and felt like no one was listening to them and not, that was perpetuated by white lawyers who really discredited their stories and said, well, you know, in a court of law, I'm not sure if this would really stand up. Um, And just not taking the time that was necessary because they were more worried about getting as many clients as they could so that they could collect that 30% uh, of their fees and really doing a disservice and re-traumatizing all these survivors who had to go through another, you know, two or sometimes three years just to demonstrate that they had experienced abuse as children. It was, it was really, really uh, hard to hear about. It was tough to watch. Um, and it was extremely frustrating to see how many lawyers um, benefited from that entire process and re-victimized an entire generation of survivors i shouldn't even say generation it was generations given how long residential schools were um functioning for so when i would meet with someone they would say i feel like i finally am being listened to because you've taken the time to hear what i'm saying and also like be able to really pull more out of them because you can you start like your your role as an advocate is to be able to connect the dots and what is really important information in order for them to make their their case stronger. Mm-hmm. And so it means like building that relationship of trust with a complete stranger from the get go, first time you're meeting them, and then they're going to tell you all their deepest darkest secrets. And then really focusing on that time to build that relationship and build that trust and say you're in a safe space and I'm going to make sure that I can do everything that's in my power to help you and make sure that, you know, your case is being heard and everything that you need to say to one, the government and also the church um, is being heard. So by, by the end of each uh, session that I had with survivor, some of them would say, well, are you a lawyer? Can, can you be my lawyer? And I said, no, my, this is my, my job ends here. I'm here to help you fill out the forms. Um, But I always had these people in the back of my mind because they just said, I really wish that you were my lawyer. And that was really, really, yeah, it was, it was so heartening, but it was also so hard because then you, you think about, um, well, who, who's going to help them in this way? You know, you just kind of have to throw it into creator's hands and hope that everything turns out well. Um, But I really wanted to be there with them like every step of the way. And I think that's the greatest gift that you have as an advocate is that you are there with somebody and amplifying their voice and their experience um, and just being that conduit so that they can find justice and that they can find, find peace in their life. Finally. Right. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. But again, it's just, it's such a long journey. And even just from survivors from residential schools, I've, I've seen how it, it, the, the, the effects can be for a lifetime, literally in terms of just the psychological damage that's done to someone that's separated from their family as a child. So that just Mm -hmm. affects their development overall Mm -hmm. from a physiological perspective with their brain and all that. So even with these people coming to you and looking to you for help. And now, well, now you're, now you're a lawyer though. Now you are a lawyer. Now you're a lawyer (laughs) now though. So what, what are you going to do going forward in terms of now you've got the official accreditation and all that stuff, but it's the, the passion hasn't changed for you or what you care about hasn't changed. It's just now you got some letters beside your name, right? So, uh, what are the next steps here for you now, Danielle? 
this this has been the question and the answer that has been at the tip of my tongue and I don't have a straight answer. Someone asked me when I was interviewing with a firm, well, what kind of law do you want to practice or what, you know, like, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to work with my people. I, I want to work with community. I want to, I want to be in the community. I don't want to be, you know, as much as I love being in the courtroom, I'm a great advocate um, and I'm very good in that regard. I want to um, remain visible as much as representation and diversity matters. It's very easy to become inaccessible um, and people can see you as if you're sort of in this ivory white tower mm-hmm. and access to justice, uh, especially in uh, indigenous communities and urban communities. I mean, just like all around is such an issue that we have to be really vigilant about staying connected to community. And a lot of the work that I've done throughout law school um, and even in my articling experience, it's very intersectional. You know, it's not just about the practice of law. It's about connecting community with the knowledge and the tools um, that they need in order to advocate for themselves. So sometimes that has meant, you know, going out and doing workshops uh, with youth groups on know your rights. What, what do you do if you're stopped by the police, if you're on foot or if you're on bike or in a car, do you know what the difference is between being arrested and being detained? And these are all so relevant, especially now when people are mobilizing on the front lines, you know, I just have so much respect for, for individuals who are out there doing that very hard work. And it's, it's not, it's not like a paid position, you know, like they're really, like they're literally putting their lives, their lives on the line because they have no other choice. They haven't been heard and it is a, a matter of life and death for them. So what can I do to empower them and give them the tools that they need in order to survive all these systems that are now going to be coming down on them, like the police, for example. I think it's just so important for people to understand what their rights are going into these situations. You know, if you want to go to a a rally or a gathering and there is a potential for police presence or interactions, how do you ensure that your people are safe? Come home alive, Um, basically. That you you come home alive. Um, And, you know, what is, what do you do after that? So, I don't know. I feel like it's it should just be like a new practice area, maybe just for me. <laughs> you got to carve your own lane. That's what you do. You got to carve my own lane. And yeah. that's something actually that my mom keeps reminding me about because with COVID, things just fell apart. Yeah. People are not able to find work. I mean, I know a lot of people from my year who have been able to secure jobs with firms. Um but if I'm speaking on a really personal matter and very frankly, like things just didn't come together for me and that took a real number on my confidence level and really questioning my place in this world and whether I chose the right path. But then my mom said, you've always just sort of like done your own thing and blazed your own trail and that's going to come together. And I mean, like I just got my call yesterday and I've been trying to chill out for a couple of weeks and I'm kind of enjoying that. So I might do a little bit more of that. But again, like I just, I've always just tried to answer the call from community. What does community need at this time? Right. And let me be that person. Let me help you in these endeavors and just kind of like bring all the right people together. Um, Because as a lawyer, you also have access to, you know, the the internal workings of these systems that um, people that are at the grassroots and community level wouldn't even know how to navigate. Right. Yeah. So, I really see myself as being sort of a bridge between these two very, very different worlds um, because we're, we're in a time and age right now where those two worlds are coming to a clash, but they have to work together in order for the system to change. And for us to impact change, we have to come together. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely feel that. And okay. This is the question. I know you don't necessarily will have an answer for this. I don't think, but um, you're going to get asked it probably for the rest of your life until you actually answer it, so to speak. So I'll just ask it now. Maybe I'll be the first. Are you going to go into politics? <laughs> you are not the first person to ask me that. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, damn it. Damn it. I'm not, I shouldn't be surprised that I'm not the first, but am I the first sort of to be pushing it for it since like you've become an official lawyer or whatever? But you know you're going to get this. You're going to get asked this a billion, yeah, fulfillion times. You know that, right? Politics scare me. I think because... I, I I shouldn't be so hard on myself, um, but I am. And I, I see that as 
a way that I've been able to just become like a better version of myself. Um, but that being said, yes, politics scare me because there's just as, as much as you're able to impact change as, you know, a spokesperson, there's so much more um, negative criticism that comes along with it. And I don't know whether I'm built for that. Right. I mean, I feel like people will always go to bat for me. Um, but I think that's kind of the beauty of doing like more behind the scenes type of work is that you can just do it quietly and without having to deal with the public criticism or, um, yeah, I'm, I'm gosh, yeah. I'm not sure. I, it's, it's definitely been like in the back of my mind. Um, and if, if it ever came down to say my community from where I grew up asking me to, to lead something, then I think I would answer that call. Um, but I would only do it with their support. I don't think I would ever be able to just, you know, take the plunge you and then, get you know, support. I would, I truly believe you would get a lot of support, but, um, <laughs> the, the thing about politics, and I understand why you're saying that it's scary and stuff, but, um, from yeah. the perspective that I've, I've, I, again, I wish I could remember who said this as well, but it always rings true with me is that, um, if you do go into something like politics and, you know, you, about ancient well, at least marcus aurelius who was like considered like a time where philosophers were sort of like in charge of doing the politics which is always probably in my opinion the best way to go about it but it's always mm -hmm. someone who's going to be a head of state that will garner ill will through his good intentions mm -hmm. yeah the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that's pretty much what it is for politicians, especially if you're a politician that has their heart in the right place. You're still always going to garner that ill will. But if the work is true, isn't it worth it? Well, of course it's worth it. I'm just saying. I mean, it's for the greater so, good. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, because you would be such an amazing politician. I believe that uh, it was just, it's just, I would hope that you'll just give it some serious consideration or maybe just the online, just the constant badgering that you are going to take over the next few years yeah. that um it might wear you down and you might just be like you know what just to shut people up i am just gonna <laughs> i'll just run i'll just run for something i won't even put any effort into my campaign i'll just do it to shut people up or something like well, that well yeah. thank you i that's such a compliment like the best compliments i get are from people from my community who recognize like you know the, the type of work that you're doing but i i will say that i did get so fed up with some things that were happening last week with senator lynn bayak and the university. I'm unfamiliar with this. What happened? Um, well, so Senator Lynn Bayak has been suspended from the Senate twice and has undergone multiple opportunities to rehabilitate and sort of make amends with the Indigenous community. And she's from um, the area that I grew up in around Treaty 3 and Anishinaabe Nation territory. Um, and it's just gotten to the point where she's had so many chances and has continued to cause harm within the community by things that she's saying mm -hmm. um, that people are saying it's time for her to resign. But the Senate gave her another opportunity to participate in some training, and it was led by the University of Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And the worst part about that is that this is the university that houses the National Center of Research for Truth and Reconciliation. It was led by the dean or the former dean of my law school, who I know personally. And so I felt like the ultimate betrayal that they had basically gone over and above calls from local indigenous for nations her for, her to, for her to resign and said, no, we got this. We're going to do three and a half day training with her and then sign off on it and say, yes. Why, she, why are they so hell bent on protecting her? You know, it's all about due process because she's also represented by a lawyer. So he's going to fight tooth and nail to ensure that she's treated fairly. Right. But I mean, this goes against every um, ounce of harm that has been caused to community at this point. You know, where are their voices? Right. Yeah. They're basically, you know, how do you think ignored. that makes all the survivors that she's interacted with and caused further harm to by saying, well, you should trade in your status card for Canadian citizenship? You know, never mind that, you know, you went to residential school. I heard that really great things happen in residential school. So they can't have been that bad. And that she that said, was the extent. Those were those were the extent to which uh, her remarks were made. And then it, there was letters that were posted on her website that she refused to take down wow. um, in support of the quote unquote positive effects of residential school. And that was why she was suspended again. 
And then she was given an opportunity to do some training with the Ontario Federation of Indigenous Friendship Centers. And they booted her out because they recognized immediately that she was not ready to learn and that she was just so unwilling to let go of these very harmful perspectives on Indigenous people. Yeah, she should. So they said, nope, we're not giving her any more chances. Yeah, she should be in and no yeah. position to be making any decisions about anything that has anything to do with Indigenous people whatsoever. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, no. And so for, for a university institution to come in and say, yep, we got this. We'll, we'll get, we'll do some training with her. I mean, again, all the best intentions, right? Yeah, sure. Um, but this was an, this was an opportunity to take a step back and say, are we the right people for this job? Do we actually, is it appropriate for us to step in? A, a quick scan over the internet would have shown how many people have been calling for her to resign. And, as lawyers and as a dean of the law school and as educators, um, the responsibility and the onus on them to to be more mindful of that is so much higher. They really should have taken more due diligence in asking the right questions and then making the final assessment to say, are we the right people for this? And we probably aren't. So no, we're not going to go ahead with this training. So what I ended up doing last week or a couple of weeks ago was I was um, with my mom and this news came out and I was just livid. And then we said, Kate, that's it. We're going to write a letter. I'm going to address it to the dean of my law school from me. I'm going to get support from my community. Um, and then basically over the course of a week, myself and other community members and survivors from the area, like Garnet Anjikaneb, he was very vocal in the beginning about speaking out um, and inviting her to to sit and learn Um and again, like that just caused further harm. And so he had said, also been saying for a number of years, no, like this, she has to go. She's just, there's there's no way of helping her. So we all mobilized over the course of a week, got this letter put together, a press release, and then got all the grand chiefs from Treaty 3, Anishinaabe Aski Nation, and all the chiefs in Manitoba to sign off on it. And then we released it last Tuesday. Okay. Um, so that, I mean, I, that's, and that I don't even know what kind of practice area of law that would be, but I was like, I want to do this all the time because this was so necessary. Um, fulfilling. And fulfilling. I really felt like we were part of something um, important because it's times like this when the systems just continue to perpetuate and overstep that you really feel helpless. Yeah. So what can you do? And this is a perfect way to wrap up the conversation because I'm pretty much at my time. But just to just so we can use this as a glaring example of everything that you just told us, because it, mm -hmm. it burned my soul for Doug Ford uh, to have to say that he does not see systemic racism in Canada. And I'm like, this is a perfect example of what you're talking about here, where the system was literally bending backwards to protect this woman clearly not afraid to show its apathy for the feelings of the people that are being directly affected by this woman and the harmful worldview that she had. There mm -hmm. you go. Do you need, do you need more examples of systemic racism or no? Like, I don't know. Like, I know we could go on for another two hours about it, but that whole story, the whole time I was hearing you tell it and I was like, yeah, this, how, how can anybody deny that there is not systemic racism? And the only people that do deny it are the ones that are not affected by it. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who continue to benefit from it. And the only reason why they fight so hard to deny that there is a history of racism and ongoing racism is because they know that it's ultimately going to affect their pockets and their paychecks and their ability to hold positions of power. Mm. Yeah, so it's all about dismantling that entire system, like kick out the legs from underneath this table and say, our voices are loud and clear. She has to go and also center our voices we don't need a Western institution to tell us what our own experiences of racism are. Yeah. If we're not deemed as professionals and experts in that regard, then it defeats all of the purpose of doing anti-racism work, which is so important right now. And people are so performative and quick to say, yes, I'm doing the work or what can I do? Or we're, we're taking this action and we're implementing recommendation number 28 from the TRC calls to actions that it's just goes against all of those intentions um, and all of those promises, because the actual action that was taken by the law school, for example, was just uh, perpetuating that harm.
Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Well, we'll 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 see how it goes. We can only take it day by day. But I'm so uh, again, just thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. I know you've got a lot on your plate, and you got a lot you think about, and you got mother duties on top of lawyer duties on top of entrepreneur duties. Like you just got a lot of plates spinning, and I appreciate that you spun a little plate for me today. Um, thank you. Yeah, no, I, know, it, I, I really enjoyed this. And I just I feel so much uh, good energy from the type of work that's happening and these conversations that are so necessary. Yeah. So I really want to uh, thank you for creating like such a safe space to have um, this dialogue. Yeah, no, it's necessary. Dialogue. It's really necessary. So oh, I appreciate it. No, thank you. And uh, this is the kind of thing that um, is needed now more than ever, I think, because I feel like we have an opportunity here. At least we have ears more than we've had in the past. I don't know. Having the ears is more than we've ever hoped for. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For both of mm -hmm. us in terms of issues for black people and indigenous people, because okay. like I said, as long as we can have ears for black issues, tr please believe we are going to use that platform to also raise indigenous issues if we have any and every opportunity, because it's just as important to us. And it goes right alongside with everything else that's happening with black people, as well as indigenous mm -hmm. people. So um, we'll just end it there on that note. And again, Danielle, you're, you're a superstar, man. You're a superstar. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so we will end there. Thank you, everybody, for uh, checking out the Ready Fox show. And we'll be back with more uh, whenever I stop procrastinating. <laughs> <laughs> Peace, everyone. All right. <laughs>